Leviticus chapter 1. But to, um, just to set things in context, we'll go back into Exodus and chapter 40, the previous uh, chapter. And we'll begin reading at verse 17. And then we'll read into Leviticus chapter 1 a few verses. Okay, so Exodus chapter 40. And we'll begin reading at verse 17. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened his sockets and set up the boards thereof and put in the bars thereof and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put the testimony into the ark and set the staves on the ark, and put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the covering, and covered the ark of the testimony, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent of the congregation upon the side of the tabernacle northward, without the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses." And he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. And he burnt sweet incense thereon as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set up the hanging at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the meat offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, before the Lord, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, 
and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood, and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering, and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar, to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Amen. We'll end the reading there at uh, verse 9. And uh, uh, just really by way of introduction, just say a couple of years ago, I was uh, in my daily, you know, quiet times. I got to the book of Leviticus and, uh, and I thought that it would be good to pause and to uh, take time to study the offerings. I thought it's a part of scripture that I've never really looked at. And so a couple of years ago, I did a, did a lot of reading, a lot of studying on uh, the offerings. And I preached a number of uh, sermons on the offerings, but uh, I found that as I, as I preached those sermons, they were all standalone sermons because I was preaching in different churches, that there was a, a lack of sort of continuity and cohesion to it. Every time I went somewhere, I had to explain various things about the offerings. And uh, I thought it'd be good uh, to revisit them uh, and to do a study on them. And so when uh, Roger phoned me up and said, would I come and do five, originally five studies with you? I thought, great, there's five offerings. We can do one offering each night. Um, And then for various reasons, it was reduced to four. And then when I actually started looking at the material, I thought, well, actually, we can't really do it justice even in... You know, even in five weeks, you couldn't do the five offerings uh, justice. So I'm not entirely sure how far uh, we will get in this uh, short series uh, that we have. Because tonight, really, I just want to lay a platform before we even study the offerings. I think it's worth uh, taking time just to understand a little bit about the book of Leviticus itself and then to lay down some principles concerning uh, the offerings um, themselves. I think a platform's vital. Um, you know, when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, he had to erect first a, you know, a, a platform, a great scaffold to reach the ceiling. And uh, not that I'm saying that our Bible studies will be uh, like the Sistine Chapel, but uh, I think it's important to have a platform for uh, studying them. And uh, so this evening, I just want to give us three points regarding Leviticus in general and then hopefully seven points on the offering. So uh, bear with me. If I go too long, Roger, flag me down and uh, we'll, we'll stop short uh, so we have time for prayer. And, uh, and I hope that you're ready to turn your pages of your Bibles to look a few things up. Uh, because the offerings are, are fascinating. They're wonderful. Uh, it's a wonderful part of Scripture, the book of Leviticus. It's a part so often neglected by Christians. And uh, I think... Just talking to Joe today, I think so often Christians, they read Genesis, they read Exodus in their, in their quiet times. And then if you're doing, uh, say, for example, the Robert Murray McShane plan, end of this month, you get to Leviticus. And people seem to hit a bit of a rut when they hit Leviticus. And it all goes uh, belly up, to say, as it were, with your reading. But it's a wonderful book. And uh, 
I want us to notice, as I said, just three things about the book of Leviticus. And the first thing is the penman of this book. The penman of this book. And the simple answer to that question is that the, the person who wrote this book was Moses. Moses, of course, is the human author. You notice that in verse 1 there. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, and so on. Moses was the person who put these things down into writing. He wrote, of course, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books that we uh, refer to as the Pentateuch. And, uh, and the reason why I mention that is because if you read uh, a lot of commentators today, particularly liberal scholars, they like to uh, question this. Did Moses really write this? And they try and break up the first five books and make it into fragments. And they will tell you that Moses didn't write half of what we think he wrote. Um, but we have many parts of scripture that testify to the fact that Moses was the writer. So for example, if you just turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 4, here the Lord Jesus Christ, he asserts that the writer of the book of Leviticus is indeed Moses. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 4 says, And Jesus saith unto him, this is the leper, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So Christ shows us here that it was Moses who wrote down the laws regarding leprosy, which we find, of course, in Leviticus in chapter 14. Further proof, you go to Luke chapter 2 as an example. Here Luke asserts that uh, the person who wrote the book of Leviticus was Moses. Luke chapter 2, you remember the occasion after the birth of Christ, when Mary took the Lord Jesus Christ after her days of purification. Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, we read, And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Read there the according to the law of Moses, and of course that was in Leviticus chapter 12. So Luke testifies to the fact that the writer of the book of Leviticus was uh, Moses himself. And you can go into John as well and you find other references there. John chapter 7, verse 22. The Lord Jesus Christ tells them there, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. He's referring to the same passage of scripture that in, Le in Leviticus chapter 12 regarding circumcision and purification. You see, this is... Uh, this book was authenticated by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the New Testament writers. But of course the real penman of this book is not Moses, but it's the Lord. This is the word of God. Moses was the human author, but God of course is the divine author. And of course the reason why I mention that is because the book of Leviticus contains more direct speech of the Lord than any other book in the Bible. As you go through, you'll notice over and over again, chapter 1, verse 1, and the Lord called unto Moses. You go on into chapter 4, for example, and the Lord spake unto Moses. In actual fact, I think out of the 27 chapters, uh, 20 of them begin, and the Lord spake, and the Lord spake. Virtually from verse 1 through to the end of the book, it is direct speech from the Lord himself. And no other book contains... There's so many words that come directly from 
the mouth of God in that sense. And so it's a fascinating book, uh, just when we look at it from that point of view. I think, uh, uh, a quick look, I think I found 56 times that expression occurs, the Lord spake in the book of Leviticus. This is a book that comes straight from Jehovah. Now, uh, the reason why I mention that, we know all these things. Moses is the penman, we know this, the Lord, it's the Lord's word, it's the, the word of God. But the reason why I say that is because, uh, as I said at the beginning, I think so often Christians, when we come to the book of Leviticus, we struggle. Um, we read Genesis, wonderful narrative, we, we see what's going on there, we follow it, it's, it's quite easy. We get to Exodus, we can see the application of the moral law and... And, and we understand it, but when we get to Leviticus and all these laws and the repetition and, and everything that's, that takes place there, I think we so often we, we get lost in it and we say, what's the relevance to me as a Christian today? And we perhaps can uh, really sort of, we just like to skip over. Let's miss out Leviticus and then we kind of, well, we may as well miss out Numbers and Deuteronomy. We sort of jump straight to Joshua and get into the battles and the fighting or maybe as a, as a male, that's, you know, my tendency, you know, to get to, and then get on to Judges, you know, that's a nice gory book. And we forget about Leviticus. But this is the word of the Lord. And of course, you remember the words of Paul uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, that wonderful verse that reminds us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. He says all scripture, and that includes Leviticus, is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for us. And so we need to always keep this in mind as we come to these uh, few Bible studies. This is the word of God and it's applicable to us today. And it has lessons for us today. And of course, it points us ultimately to Christ. It shows us more of our Saviour. So we should come humbly. We should come reverently. We should come like the Bereans and like Josiah. We should come with tender hearts, ready to humble ourselves beneath the word of God. So that's the penman of the book. But notice the position of the book. You notice that we have uh, Genesis first, Exodus second, Leviticus Third, there's, a, there's a, a natural flow to these books. Genesis, of course, is a book of beginnings. Reveals to us the beginning of this world, the beginning of man and creation. But more, perhaps sadly, we might say the beginning of sin. And really, from Genesis 3 onwards, it is a, a book that reveals the effects of sin and of ruin and of all the problems that sin brings into this world. But then we come to Exodus, and what follows from Genesis is a book that reveals redemption, how man can be made right with God, how he can be redeemed. And of course, the wonderful passage there in Exodus of redemption is through the blood, through the blood of a lamb, a perfect, a pure and spotless lamb. So then when we come to Leviticus, we ask ourselves, well, what's the, what's the connection here between the two books before well, commentators put it like this, Genesis speaks of ruin, Exodus speaks of uh, redemption, and Leviticus speaks of reconciliation. We read there at the uh, 
the beginning, the end of the book of Exodus and the rearing of the tabernacle and how that was constructed. And, of course, God gave all the directions for that and he gave precise instructions as to the fabric of the tabernacle. But when you come to Leviticus, now he gives precise directions as to how the people were to worship him, how they were to come before him. In Exodus, of course, he had spoken from Sinai, he had thundered, there had been fire, there had been lightnings, and the people had, had you know, gone back in fear. But now in Leviticus, he speaks to them in verse 1 from the tabernacle of the congregation. He's come down. And so now Leviticus is a book as to how the people can approach this holy God, this God who's a consuming fire, how they can worship him, how they can bring worship that is acceptable before him. They'd been separated up to this point, but now they will be able to come and to approach him. And so the book of Leviticus gives us all these different laws and ceremonies and rituals, and the offerings form the first, (coughs) really, seven chapters of this book. And it teaches to us, doesn't it, that none of these things were left to man's invention. God had designed the tabernacle, and now he lays down very specific laws as to how they were to worship him. And he always prescribes the way that we're to come to him. We should never add things to scripture or take things away. Worship is prescribed by scripture, and we should always approach him on the basis of what he tells us in his word. And so that's the position of the book, and that leads us on to then thirdly, the, the, the purpose of the book. What's the, what's the point of this book? Well, I think we can uh, boil this book down really to two words, and those two words are atonement and holiness. Atonement and holiness. Just turn with me two key texts, I think, that sum up this book. Leviticus 17 and verse 11. Leviticus 17 and verse 11. This one here speaks of the atonement. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And this book's all about atonement, at one moment, having that communion and that reconciliation and that worship of God. And that's what the offerings are all about, really. They're all about the atonement and coming to God. And the second word is holiness. What does God require of us? Well, Leviticus chapter 11 is the other key text. Leviticus 11 and verse 44. This is a verse or the sentiments of this verse appear a number of times in the book. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves of any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. You see, God says to the people, look, I'm a holy God. I'm pure, I'm sinless, I'm perfect. And therefore he insists on holiness in his people. He insists that we live lives that are like him. Be ye holy as I am holy, he says. 
And of course, that's why we have so many laws in the book about purification and cleansing and washing. The worshippers were to come with being pure and cleansed. And so were the priests. The priests were to cleanse themselves. And of course, we're to have pure hands, aren't we, and clean hearts when we come before the Lord. So that's really just a, a very basic introduction to Leviticus. And as I said, I just want to focus now particularly on the offerings themselves. What do the offerings teach us? What can we say as a whole about the offerings before we look at really the first one, uh, God willing, next week? Well, the first thing is this, about these five offerings that we find in these opening chapters. The first thing is this, the primary focus of the offerings is Christ. The primary focus of these offerings is Christ. Christ, of course, is the great theme, isn't he, of all Scripture. He is the central subject that runs all the way from Genesis through to Revelation. That's the one great thought that is stamped over all of God's Word, every historical act, every moment, every type, every part of of God's Word. It's just continually pressing this one theme. Look, here is Christ. Christ, of course, in his glorious person, in his life, in his work, his atoning death at Calvary, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of these things are laid out before us in the Old Testament. And Christ is the key to the divine word. When we understand Christ, then we we understand the scriptures. And uh, we see this being illustrated, this is the point, isn't it, that's made even by Christ himself. If you turn to Luke chapter 24... Uh, Christ spells this out so clearly twice in this chapter. Luke chapter 24. You remember the two were walking on the road to Emmaus after Christ's resurrection. Christ comes alongside them. And uh, we read there in verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning at Moses, that's the Pentateuch, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He was speaking about himself and he used the Pentateuch, he used uh, Moses to explain himself. You go on in that chapter, later on verse 44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. He gives there the threefold division of the Old Testament. And he says, all of these parts of the scripture were speaking about me. They were testifying of me. You go on even to John chapter 5. That wonderful uh, text there where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, gives a a command where he says this in, in John 5 and verse 39. He says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. He says, look, study the scriptures, search the scriptures, look in the scriptures, spend time meditating on the scriptures. Why? Because I'm there. I'm the key. I'm the central theme. Same uh, chapter, John 5, and just go back a few verses. Verse 36. Um, Is that the right? 46, rather. Go on a few verses. For had he believed Moses, he says... Ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. He wrote about Christ. 
Moses, when he pens these first five books, when he penned Leviticus, he was speaking of Christ. And of course, you can just go back, you remember in John chapter 1, Nathaniel. And uh, remember what uh, that account there, when Philip findeth Nathaniel, and Philip says to him in verse 45, he says, saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. You see, the offerings reveal to us Christ. And as, as New Testament Christians, we are to look back at the book of Leviticus and we're to see him. And so as we come to the offerings in our studies, we're to, the first thing we should be doing is, where is Christ? Let's look for him. I'd like to illustrate this by using an experiment that I'm sure we all did uh, when we were at school, you remember when you used to take a, a prism or a block of glass and you had to shine a light into the block of glass and, of course, the light is refracted and it reveals all the colours of the rainbow, all the different hues that are contained within light. And I think that when we take, as it were, Leviticus, the, the block, as it were, of Leviticus, the glass prism of Leviticus, and we shine the light of the New Testament into the block, and it reveals to us all the glorious colours and the hues of Christ. And that's what the offerings do. It's, uh, it's showing to us Christ in all his different roles and his different parts. Each of the offerings presents to us a different aspect of the life and the work and the ministry and the death of Christ. One of the uh, commentators said this. He said, God, in a sense, he takes his son to bits. I think that's a, a very helpful way of putting it. He takes his son to bits, in a sense. He was saying that reverently. You just think, for example, what everything that was taking place at Calvary, in a sense, we, we couldn't understand all of it. So he has to show us in different pictures, different ways, everything that was taking place when Christ was dying on our behalf. Just as on, on a very simple level, you can take the Day of Atonement, the two goats. One goat, of course, the sin was confessed on the goat and the goat was sent away. A picture of Christ bearing our sin into the wilderness, into that uninhabited land. But the other goat was then taken and slain and his blood was shed, a picture of Christ's sacrifice. And so there was two elements of the death of Christ that had to be displayed in two pictures. And when we come to the offerings, Christ is broken down into various parts for us uh, to view. That's the first thing then, that uh, the primary focus is Christ. Well, the second thing is that Christ is pictured in every part. And what do I mean by that? Well, as you read the, the offerings, you'll notice that there are three key roles in all of the offerings. You'll have seen that. Just take, for example, verse 2 of what we read. If any man of you bring an offering, there's two, two parts. There's a man, an offerer, and he brings an offering. And you'll notice then, you come to verse 5, and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priests, heir and son, shall bring the blood. So there's a third aspect. You've got a man bringing an offering, and then there's a priest. You've got an offerer, an offering, and a priest. And Christ is pictured in all three of these roles. He fulfills all three aspects of these offerings. Christ, of course, is our great high priest. Remember what Hebrews 3 tells us, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And of course, Hebrews really is just a commentary on the book of Leviticus. 
And of course, he tells us that, doesn't he? Christ is our great high priest. And of course, the priest was a mediator. Remember what Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And not only is Christ our great high priest, but he is the offering. Remember what John said, he points to, points to Christ, doesn't he? He says, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And also Christ stands as the offerer. He's the one who gives this offering. He is the one, of course, who laid down his life for his people. He comes on behalf of his people to offer the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God? And so as we go through the offerings, we'll notice these three parts. There's an offerer, an offering, and there's a priest. And Christ fulfills all three of those roles. That's the second thing then. Christ is pictured in every part. But the third thing we could say is this, that Christ fulfills the offerings. Christ fulfills the offerings. You see, these offerings didn't just point to Christ. And the high priest didn't just point to Christ, and the offering didn't just point to Christ, but Christ actually fulfilled it. Christ ended it. His one perfect life, his one perfect sacrifice, ended these sacrifices forever. His atoning death at Golgotha finished them once for all, didn't it? They would never be needed again. There's no need for a priest anymore. There's no need for an offering or an offerer to come, because Christ has done it all, and I think we're all thankful for that. You didn't have to come, you know, you didn't all come this evening with a lamb under your arm, or, you know, bringing in a bullock on a, on a, uh, on a lead, as it were. No, Christ has done it all. And in actual fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that these offerings were completely inadequate. They were hopeless. They were merely pointing of good things to come. And Christ, of course, was the substance. It tells us there that the law was only a shadow. And Christ is the one who's fulfilled all of these things. Of course, Hebrews 10 tells us it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. They could never make the comer perfect. They could never purge the conscience. But do you remember what Hebrews 10 says? Just turn with me to that passage. It's a wonderful uh, passage of Scripture. And uh, you have that wonderful contrast in Hebrews 10 between verse 11 and 12. A fourfold contrast we have there. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. What a wonderful Two verses, that is. They see, the priesthood, it could never take away sins. The priests, they offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Blood was shed day after day after day. But Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And he sat down. His work's complete. The priests never sat down. Their work was never done. It was never finished. We only ever read of one priest who sat down, and that was Eli. You remember what happened when he sat down? But Christ, he sat down 
I think four times in the book of Hebrews we're told that he is sat down because his work is finished. Christ has done it all. He's fulfilled it all. When Christ died, of course, he cried, it is finished. And you remember the sign was given, the veil in the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. Why? Because everything was now obsolete and we could come and approach God through Christ. We should praise God, shouldn't we, tonight, believer, that it's all done. That Christ has paid it all. There's a hymn in our, in our hymn book, hymn 262. It says this, Tist finished, here our souls can rest. His work can never fail. By him, our sacrifice and priest, we enter through the veil. Christ is our sacrifice, our high priest. He fulfills it all and we enter through him. That was the, the third thing then. Fourthly, where are we, Roger, with time? Um, oh, okay, well, we better hurry up then. Fourth thing then, very quickly, very quickly. And we should note as we look at these, there's an intimate connection between all of these offerings. There's an intimate connection. You have the burnt offering in chapter 1, where an animal is taken, an unblemished animal, it's killed. And the whole of the animal is burnt upon the altar apart from the skin. And blood is shed and it speaks of the atoning death of Christ. Then you come to chapter 2, you have the meat offering or the, the grain offering. That had to come second. Why? Well, because it's a bloodless offering. You must first come with blood. There must be the shedding of blood. And that's, of course, where Cain went wrong. He thought he could bypass the blood. No, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You must always come first with a burnt offering. And then the meat offering came second. And the two were often offered together. You notice that in the passage that we read back in Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verse 29. Moses offered the burnt offering and the meat offering together. And that's what always happens. They were always offered together. And then you come to chapter 3, you come to the peace offering. And the fat of the peace offering was laid on top of the burnt offering. So there's this intimate connection between all three of the opening sacrifices. And then you come to the trespass offering and the sin offering and four and five. And there's a connection between those two. You see, they're all interrelated, these offerings. And of course, they show to us different aspects of the work of Christ. You cannot, in a sense, break them apart and separate them because they all belong, as a, in a sense, as a whole to Christ. So there's this intimate connection that we need to notice as we go through the offerings. Fifthly, then, there's also many similarities between the offerings. And uh, you'll notice that, of course, if you read through the book, there's repeated phrases over and over and over again. And let me just notice uh, three of them with you. Notice firstly, chapter 1, verse 3, one of these expressions that appears a number of times at the end of that verse there. It says that he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle. At the door of the tabernacle. That occurs again in verse 5. You go into the peace offering in chapter 3. You notice it's there in verse 2. You go on into the sin offering, chapter 4, verse 4. You'll find it's there. You'll find it's in verse 7 of chapter 4 as well. At the door of the tabernacle. At the door of the tabernacle. Verse 18 of chapter 4 too. They were to bring it to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And of course, the door speaks of access. 
It's the way we enter a building, it's through a door. It was a reminder to the people that no one could cross, cross the threshold into God's holy presence without first bringing an offering. You see, there had to be the shedding of blood before anyone could approach before God. And of course, it's only in Christ that we can approach God. And so this expression reminds us, as we read it over and over again in the offerings, an offering must be made before we can have access to him. But notice another expression, and that's in verse 4 of chapter 1, here in the burnt offering. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. He shall put his hand upon it. You find that again in um, chapter 4 and verse 4, for example, he shall bring the bullock unto the door and so on, and he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's heads. You find it in the peace offering too, chapter 3 and verse 2, and there's lots of places. In actual fact, I think in the, um, the sin offering, you find it five times, this this putting the hand upon the animal. Literally in the Hebrew, it means to lean on the animal. The offerer came and he, he leaned upon the animal as he confessed his sin, as he, as he confessed his, his wrongdoings and his trespasses. And the action spoke of identity. There was identity between the offerer and the offering that he was bringing. The offering, you see, was being viewed as identical as the offerer. So as he stood there and he leaned upon the animal, he was in a sense saying, this animal is taking my place and is bearing my sin. Can you imagine as that animal was then taken and it was slain and its blood was shed? Can you imagine in the burnt offering, the whole of the animal was placed upon that offering and it was burnt as a sweet savour and, and the offerer is standing there and saying, that's me. That's me that should be there. I've confessed my sin, but this this animal's taken my place. You see, the whole point is it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of of Christ as our substitute. That Christ has stood in our place. That he's borne our sin. He's the one who's borne our punishment. Remember that wonderful hymn of Isaac Watts, uh, Not All the Blood of Beasts. It says there, My faith would lay her hands... On that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand, and there confess my sin. And in a sense, that's what we do when we come in faith to Christ, isn't it? The believer, as it were, he places, he comes and he leans on Christ and he says, Christ, I confess my sin, and Christ bears it away as our substitutes. And we are identified with Christ, and we look at Christ and we say, There's me. That was the death I deserved. And so that's the, the second expression there. But notice another expression. Just look in verse 1 and chapter 3. Another thing that we find that occurs over and over again in these offerings. And that's this, if, he off, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. You'll find that expression, without blemish, without blemish, over And over again, you go into the peace offering, you find it mentioned twice there, particularly. Christ, of course, is the one who was pure and spotless. He was the holy, harmless, undefiled. He was separate from sinners, wasn't he? The offering that they had to bring had to be the best of the herds. 
It couldn't be the one that was lame, the one that was sick. It had to be the best, pure, without blemish. Remember what Peter says, our Lord Jesus Christ, he said he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There was no spot of sin or stain of sin in Christ at all. And so Christ fulfills this perfectly. He's the one, the only one who could take and be our substitute and take our punishment because he was pure. And he was spotless. He was everything that we have never been, isn't he? We, of course, are marked by sin before we're even, even born. In sin did my mother conceive me, David confesses in Psalm 51. And so we see these, these expressions that appear over and over again at the door of the tabernacle, access to God. Without blemish, Christ is pure and spotless. And he is the, our, our substitute who we lay our hands, as it were, by faith upon. Sixthly, we're near the end, near the end of our seven points. Sixthly, notice about these offerings, that these offerings were sermons in action. Sermons in action. You have to remember that when we come to the book of Leviticus, that the people of Israel had no Bible at this point. They didn't have a written word of God, of course. The, the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, but they hadn't yet, as it were, had, a, had access to the word of God. And so God gave them the tabernacle. He gave them this, this tent, and he gave them all the offerings, and he gave them all these vows and, and all the ceremonies and the festivals, and they were to preach, as it were, to the people. They were sermons, very vivid and striking illustrations to the people. And of course they were illustrating to them spiritual truths. Now how much the average Israelite understood of what he was seeing, it perhaps is difficult to, you know, to know, but I, I think that perhaps we downplay how much they realised, how much they understood. These were preaching to them all the time. They were telling them truths, and of course telling them truths, as we said, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were very vivid. You just think here of the burnt sacrifice that we just read of. Notice what it says there in verse 4. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. This is the offerer. So the offerer has brought a bullock, and that's, that's, a, that's not a small animal. That's a big animal. He's brought a, a bullock to the door of the congregation, and now he leans upon the head of this animal. This is very... Very, you know, very real thing that you do. It wasn't something imaginary, and, and it, you know, this is something that he had to do physically. He leans upon the head of the animal, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And then notice verse 5, this is the most striking part. And he, this is not the priest, this is the offerer, and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord. Can you imagine that? Imagine having to take the best of your herd and you lean upon the animal and now you have to kill it. Obviously here amongst rural folk, perhaps we're you know, a little bit more accustomed to this than, than some people today or a lot of people today. But even, for a, even for, the, for a farmer to take an animal and to kill it, it's difficult to do. It's, it's something you, you, we naturally you know, recline from. We don't want to do it. But he had to kill it himself. Now, obviously, when the Israelites grew and the temp, we had the temple and so on, it became the priest's job. But at the beginning, this was the job of the offerer. He had to kill the animal himself. 
And what a striking picture that was, that sin deserves a death. That sin deserves blood to be shed. What a, what a striking illustration that would have been to him. This is what I deserve. As that blood flowed from that animal, as the animal dropped dead in front of him, what a shocking picture that would be. This is what sin, sin deserves. And so these offerings were, were sermons in action. And in a sense, in some ways, it would be nice, wouldn't it, to have these before us, to show us just how grotesque these things would be. But of course we have something far superior. We have spiritual realities as New Testament believers. We don't need these things. We, we've gone beyond them. Christ has fulfilled them. But in a sense, it would be nice to show people, look, can you not see? Here's an innocent lamb, or here's a dove, and the dove is just broken and crushed. An innocent dove, this is what you deserve because of your sin. And there's six things, lastly, this evening, and very quickly, these offerings provide us with a pattern. They provide us with a pattern as Christians for Christian service. And I say this is the last one. Many people today put it the other way around. They say Christ's death and these offerings, uh, the primary focus is, is how we should live our lives. But of course the primary part of Christ's death is his atonement and the satisfaction that he's made with God. But these sacrifices here, they point us to our self-sacrifice for God's. His offerings here, these offerings set the model, they set the standard for us as Christians as to how we should live in this world. Do you remember what Paul said? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. That verse there that reminds us of how we're to live as Christians. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, as believers, we are in Christ. We have a union with Christ. And when Christ died, we died with him. When he rose again, we rose with him. And we must therefore walk even as he walked, and we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. When we come to the burnt offering and we see it offered there, holy upon the altar, our whole of our lives should be offered up in service to God's. We have to confess, don't we, that so often we only offer part of our lives. We have a lot of Sunday-only Christians. We might say we have today a lot of Sunday-morning-only Christians as well. You know, what do we do between Monday and Saturday? Are we offering up our lives? Self-sacrifice to God. Paul says we must die daily. We're to seek to live for him. Paul wrote in in Philippians, he said there in uh, chapter 4, I think it is. Um, Yeah, chapter 4 and verse 18. You remember that uh, the Philippians sent Paul a gift while he was in prison. And he received that gift in verse 18 of Epaphroditus. And he says, the things which were sent from you, they were an odour of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. 
You see, what they had done for Paul was a sacrifice for him, and our lives, of course, should be a sacrifice for one another. And so as we come to these offerings, we always have to have that in mind as well. Not only does it picture Christ, but we should see ourselves. How are we to live as Christians in this world that is polluted and sinful? How are we to give our lives as a sacrifice for him? Well, may that be our prayer even tonight, that we would live lives that are acceptable and well-pleasing before God's.